Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder. Outside of Corona Cigar Company in the Orlando area, and I'm with Travis Bowman. Travis, welcome. What is going on? So How are you doing? doing so good. good to be on here. Thanks, buddy. It's nice to finally meet you in person because we've interacted on Facebook so long. So long we've interacted on Facebook and yeah, friends and just... Every time you're in town, I'm out yeah, or unavailable. No, and, and so, I, so we've just. I we've, travel a lot. I know we've missed each other in Southern California, exactly. in Colorado. Yeah. It's so funny. It's true. We're just missing each other. And so <laughs> I just had that happen with Matt Hammett. I don't know oh, if you ever, did you? Yeah. Yep. I, I flew into Southern California the day that he. He was he flying up. Yeah, he left. And so I, was like, I think oh, you were at Brett Kunkel's house like yes, the I day was. after I was at Brett's house. And yeah. It, that was a couple years ago, I forget. But yes. anyway, yeah. That is funny. Too funny. So what you smoking? Bro, my go-to is a Liga Pravada T52. Drew Estate. I Man, I tell you, some good cigars. And Daniel Ritchie, who I know you've had on here, he was telling me about their... Um, I forget the name for the master cigar who left Drew Estate and has now started his own brand. He gave me one for my 50th birthday uh, not too long ago. So, yeah. anyway, but the League of Nevada T52s are a good one. So, that's where you grew up. Bro, I grew up in the Baltimore area. Glen Burnie, for anybody who knows Baltimore, Glen Burnie, don't hold it against me. But uh, that's where I, my wife and I both grew up there. But um, my dad worked for NSA. And uh, for those of you who know, NSA stands for no such agency, does not exist. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we, we were pretty much there uh, most of my upbringing, except for me and my dad with working for the, uh, the government, the U.S. government. We ended up living over in Germany for three years. So in the early 80s, we lived in Stuttgart, Germany. So I can say that was also part of my background. That's, a, that's actually a big part of, of even who I am today. Yeah. Your dad's working for the NSA. What'd your mom do? My mom was the traditional, uh, you know, exactly. So leave the beaver, uh, stay home mom. I don't know. Siblings? Huh? Siblings? Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know that my mom, outside of like early or before getting married, that she had a job after she, and they've been married. My parents are still alive. They've been married now for 55 years, I think this year. Yeah, 55 years. So I'm not sure that she actually ever had a job outside the home, you know. But as we all know, the home for the women who are listening to this podcast, that is a full-time job in itself. So, siblings, yes, I got an older brother, younger brother, and then surprise, little sister. So my parents were early 40s, and surprise, surprise, the Lord had a little girl in store. So I was 14 when she was born. So we all like to joke in our family that she grew up with four dads, because three teenage boys and, and dad and that girl, she is spoiled rotten, you know, still is to this day. She's in her thirties. CJ, if you listen to this, you're still spoiled rotten, you know it. <laughs> <laughs> so what point did you get back from Germany? Where'd you guys go? Yeah, I would say that the part that shaped me living there in Germany was uh, the Iron Curtain was still up. And my dad, of course, wasn't allowed to go to a communist country, but he was doing a lot of work in Berlin. So he would fly into West Berlin, which was the free side. So for those that are not familiar with Berlin at the time, it was split down the middle. So there was an East Berlin, West Berlin. And some people, you know, especially a young generation don't really fully grasp that, don't understand that. My wife, we've traveled over to Europe many times here in, in an adult, you know, just with business. And my wife didn't really even fully understand that until we were in Berlin. I was explaining this to her. I'm like, 
here we are. And the Berlin Wall was right here, you know? She doesn't understand that. But as a kid, the Berlin Wall was still there. And so my dad got special leave to take me and my two brothers. Uh, my mom had no interest in going through communist Germany. So East Germany, we get on a train, go through. My dad wasn't allowed, was told he's not allowed to get off the, the train. So we were on the train until we got to Berlin. But along the, every stop was, you know, armed guns, something out of a movie set, you know? And as a kid, you know, that was very impressionable to me. I mean, just seeing tyranny versus freedom. And then, of course, to get to Berlin, and there's a very famous spot, Checkpoint Charlie, for those that have been there. And at the time, again, the wall's still up. And there's a deck that you could go up to the top and you could look down the wall and you could literally see freedom versus tyranny. I mean, it was just crazy. See, people trapped in their city can't go anywhere versus people who are free to come and go. Was there any difference that you saw that you can remember what versus, you know, the architecture, the quality of the buildings, the how built, how well the buildings were up kept, people? I will never forget that. It was like seared in my memory because communism was dark and dingy and dirty. And then the free enterprise world was like, you know, it's like new and, you know, enterprise and bustling, you know. It was just a stark, stark difference. And as a kid, it was, like I said, seared in my memory. That's cool. When did you get back? So we were there in 82 to 85. And um, so I was middle school years for me. And um, we get back in 85. The wall came down in 89. So it was only about a few years later. But, you know, that really shaped my thinking even to this day. And then, you know, as a later teenage years, watching on the news, the wall coming down and people just, it was like, wow, that's happening in my lifetime. You know, it's just crazy to yeah. see them bust the wall down and freedom. It was you know, electric freedom to bring. be a part of and see. Right? I know. And so now that I've been back as an adult, uh, you know, I got a little piece of the Berlin wall sitting, you know, in my desk and my office just to, I, you know, again, I, I look at that and I go, man, I was there when it was, when people were still trapped inside their city, like they couldn't go. Matter of fact, my wife and I were traveling to Switzerland, just, uh, this was maybe a couple of years ago, we were, uh, we've been to Switzerland a bunch of times, love it there, but we were having dinner in Switzerland and a young waitress, like 23 years old, we we're just asking her where she's from and all that. She goes, oh, I grew up in Berlin. I was like, oh, what was that like to grow up in Berlin? I said, I'm guessing your mom Knew what it was, you know, was, lived there during communism. She said, yeah, I kind of was born right, right as the Berlin Wall came down and all that. And, but she said, my mom's best friend was on the other side of the wall. So when the wall was built, that was it. And for 40 whatever years, didn't see her best friend. And, and then the wall comes down. But I, and I, so I'm sitting there just listening to her story. I'm like, trip out. I mean, think of how many family members, your brother, your sister, your what, you know, or on the other side of that wall. You can't see it, man. That was very impressionable to me, as, as you can imagine, as, as it would be for anybody to visit Check, Checkpoint Charlie and see that. So, high school, where'd you go? So, high school. So, interestingly enough, because we lived in Germany in the early 80s, my dad working for the government, we were not stationed on the base. We were actually stationed out into the German village. And so my mom said, I don't want my kids going to the bus you know early in the morning going into the military school so she homeschooled us so my older brother young brother three of us were homeschooled in the 80s when nobody was homeschooled matter of fact it was it's illegal to homeschool today in germany at the time it was legal to homeschool but in the u.s 
at the time, it was illegal to homeschool in many of the states across the country. About 50% of the United States was illegal to homeschool in the early 80s, but we lived in Germany, where it was, it was okay. Now today, today you cannot homeschool over in Germany. It is flat out illegal. That's crazy. But anyway, so, you know, we were homeschooled there, and, uh, but we came back, and I was at a private school before going over there and going over to Germany, small uh, Christian school, Baptist roots, and came back to that same Christian school, um, so plugged in there. But my story with Jesus is that even though I grew up in a Christian home and all that, I began just following the crowd. And so at age 16, I decided to follow Christ, truly follow Christ, and I said, I can't go back to that Christian school. <laughs> so I told my parents, I'm like, I can't go back to that Christian school. That, that, I'm following the crowd and they're, they're getting fake IDs and running off to strip clubs and you know, stuff like that at a, at a good quote Christian school. For I'm sure most people who are listening to this, they're like, yep, that's, <laughs> I mean, those stories are dime a dozen, unfortunately. And so I decided to do homeschooling in my junior and senior year of high school. But that was after uh, the Lord really changed my heart and really convicted me of just my need for a savior, right? What'd you do after high school? So I am an entrepreneur through and through. I mean, I've owned multiple businesses in my life and known I own multiple businesses right now that keep me traveling and having cigars with a lot of the holy smokers out there. But I started a business in my high, you know teenage years in high school and um, you know, graduated from high school, continued uh, growing it, incorporated it by 20, had 11 employees at 20, and um, just one of those, you know, I'm just, I guess one of those, just jump off the cliff and let's go make a business. And But I really truly didn't know what I was doing at 20 years old. I, I knew, um, I was, it was a landscaping business in the Baltimore area. I didn't know how to run a business. So just the typical P&L sheet, things like that, I was so green to, and so, my first business failure was there in my in my early 20s. What was it? Just landscaping. Yeah, just yeah. I had the opportunity to work for a world famous uh, landscape architect here in the Baltimore D.C. area, and he had done landscape design for Wolf Grant, er, for um, for Oprah Winfrey, and just a number. You know, Manhattan. You'd, you'd even still today, you'd see a lot of his landscape design. So I learned a lot from him, and was just out on my own doing my own you know designs and installations and. But again, I, the business book side of it, that's where I fell on my face. And so by the ripe old age of 21, I filed bankruptcy. So, <laughs> and so the, the less, you know, I, I like to say I have uh, maybe two PhDs in the, the University of Hard Knocks. You know, if you say HK, you know, people think, oh, Hong Kong, I got your doctorate in Hong Kong. No, no. Hard Knocks, Hard Knocks, baby. <laughs> doctorate from the University of Hard Knocks. So landscaping, what'd you do after that? Did you well, so my wife and I get married in 97, and uh, she grew up on the other side of Baltimore. Uh, we met at a church in the Baltimore area, large church. It was a um, great church in Baltimore. But anyway, we, so we meet there, get married in 97, and business was, well, right at that point, my early 20s was, uh, I had filed bankruptcy, restarted, you know, started a new business, and then we had a drought in, in Baltimore. It was the worst drought in 40 years. Now, you know, if you're landscaping, a drought's like, you know, for a farmer, you know, if you're a farmer and you have a drought, you have no business. And that was kind of the way it was. And so half the, the landscapers in the Baltimore area went out of business. I was one of those. So I had a job offer in Seattle. And my best friend growing up in the Baltimore area had moved to Seattle, married a girl, and he calls me. He's like, hey, I got this job if you're interested. It's working for King County in uh, downtown Seattle. And, and I was like, sign me up. So, um, so we 
sold off what assets we had with our business and we packed it all up in 97 and moved out to awesome, beautiful Northwest, man. I love it out there in the beautiful Where'd you guys Northwest. settle? Up there. So in the Seattle area, most of the time, we initially lived in the Tuckwill area right by the airport, but um, then uh, lived in a house uh, down in Bonnie Lake, so towards Tacoma. And Bonnie Lake's beautiful because you're right close to Mount Rainier, but you're also kind of looking out over the Puyallup Valley and just loved it. Absolutely loved it. How long were you there? So we were there eight years. Uh, we've got two boys, they're 24 and 22 today, but at the time they were little and as they were growing up and um, we just realized, you know, they're growing up and they're, they're missing the family, the, you know, the rich history of just some godly roots that they'll never really know, living way out on the West Coast compared to where all family, all of our families on the, West, on the East Coast. So. But I owned a business again out there in Seattle, and um, that was a, a marketing a media firm. And so um, that's where I found myself getting into radio, did had a live radio show out of Seattle print advertising and uh, found myself getting a little bit into television as well. And so when we moved back east, I said, you know what, I want to explore those media roots and television and radio a little bit further. I got to smoke my cigar here, otherwise it's going to go out. Yeah, that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. So what got you into media? That's so, a big jump I mean, from landscaping. Yeah, I mean, from landscaping, it moved to Seattle. I mean, moved to North Carolina is where we, we uh, landed in 2006. And my landscaping background, I had done some continued education and some classes at the University of Washington that was like soil science and that sort of thing. And so when we got to North Carolina, I was hired into the environmental industry. Now, I knew nothing about the environmental industry. I mean, like nothing, like zero. But I come to find out, I'm like, okay, this industry is just trying to clean up the pollution that we have, you know? And... Um, I just found myself just riveted with, man, if there's all this contamination, I mean, I, I found myself working on projects where there's contamination underneath of the school and kids are getting sick going to school every day. What? And I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah what? I'll never forget one of the craziest uh, projects I was working on was a gas station that had leaked underground for decades. And across the road was an old lady. And, and so we were working on cleaning up the contamination. The gas station had been shut down for like 20 years. But we were out there cleaning up the contamination. Well, the lady across the street, she said, yeah, for years, she's old lady. She's like, for years, I've been hosing off my, my flowers and my vegetables. I keep smelling gasoline through my hose. I don't know why. And she literally had no idea that the gasoline station had been leaking for decades and she'd been spraying it on her tomatoes. And I, you know, I had no knowledge of the environmental industry. I, and I'm, so I step into that world and I'm like, What's well, a good thing somebody's cleaning up this pollution? Like, you know, I didn't know anything about it. Like, wow. So I, mean, I, I cut my teeth. Uh, Makes you wonder how often those things leak. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot more than you realize. And I've been in the industry almost 20 years. And so fast forward, I worked for that company for a couple of years. And then being the entrepreneur that I am, I was like, hang it, I got I to gotta get back to my, <laughs> my roots of being an entrepreneur. And so... I just became an independent sales rep for a number of different technologies and was selling them all across North America. And then a few years later, I started a company called Environmental Workshops. So the Environmental Workshops, we train environmental professionals all over the globe and they need continued education to maintain their license, just like an architect or an attorney or a CPA. So we provide those continued education credits for them. But we, we host about 50 environmental workshops every year. 
uh, prior to the pandemic, it was about 70 a year, but uh, we've been to six continents and 22 countries. And uh, so fast forward, it, I mean, what, what God was stepping me into in the environmental world that I knew nothing of. Uh, now we're the largest training organization for environmental professionals globally. It's, uh, it's pretty been pretty crazy. So. so what do we not know about environmental cleanup? What you don't realize is how many conservatives are in the industry. Most people think the environmental world is full of a left-wing you know, agenda, which is not true at all. There are, I mean, people running companies who see just like I do, and that is that God's given us this beautiful earth to maintain and take care of, just like the Garden of Eden. You know, you think of Adam and Eve. And we should be good stewards of it. And if you know there's contamination, all of us want good, clean drinking water to drink from, right? If you go just south of the border to Mexico, if anybody's been to Mexico, you'll see in the hotel, do not drink the water, right? Everybody will tell you that. Like, you go to a restaurant, don't drink the water. Why is that? Because the pollution is out of control. So all of us, no matter what political side of the spectrum you're on, all of us want good, clean drinking water. We all want clean soil to grow our crops in. Everybody does, Why? right? So that was probably, I'd say that's probably the biggest misnomer of the environmental industry is that people think it's just a left agenda, but it's in fact not. It's actually people just trying to be good stewards. And so I know so many good, solid believers and Christians who are in the industry doing great work using all kinds of different technologies to clean up pollution. And so probably from a, if you really get, dive, I mean, I could bore the heck out of you on the show of the environmental stuff that's out there, but to clean up pollution 50 feet below us, if, you know, where we're sitting right now, 100 years ago, what was here? Was there a manufacturing plant that was just dumping chemicals here, you know, which that, you know, that's gone everywhere. You know, that's happened all across our country. But if there was a contamination underneath this building here where we're sitting, how would you clean it up? And there's all kinds of technologies, uh, chemistries or bioremediation that you can use to clean it up. What's the craziest story? Uh, I mean, the, the, probably the, shocking. The, yeah, probably. Um, I mean, I'd say probably the most shocking one that I was a part of was that lady who was spraying her, her vegetables for decades with with petroleum. I mean, she had no idea she was spraying petroleum all over her vegetables. That blew my mind. That was early on getting into, into the industry for me. Obviously, there's bigger ones. Obviously, you know, if you go watch uh, some of the movies out there, one of the most well-known current movies that you'd find on Netflix called Dark Waters. And dark water is about PFAS, and that's a big, big hot topic in our industry. Another thing that most people wouldn't know, if you do watch dark waters, you get freaked out initially. You're like, PFAS, oh my God. But what's crazy is what's going on currently today in the industry, and the, and the EPA is trying to regulate it so stringently, it'd be like finding the gnat on the back of 800,000 elephants that you can't find, you know. But they're regulating it in this extreme crazy so that's the other part of the environmental industry is there's these extreme you know pendulum swings so i'd say that's probably part of the industry that most people don't fully grasp but i've been in it now for 20 years and it's uh, it's very fascinating what else do you have going on well as i smoke my cigar here i said uh, i'm an entrepreneur and i got a lot of things going on but the crazy thing is when i moved to north carolina my grandmother, who loved to tell stories, my grandmother um, was telling stories very probably till the day she died. She was 93 when she died, but she was like, you know, now that you live in North Carolina, you should go visit that monument that stands in, in honor of our famous ancestor from the American Revolution. 
I was like, huh? What are you talking about? She's like, you know, the giant from the American Revolution, Peter Francisco. I told you about it when you were a kid. It's like he was on a stamp in 1976. I was like, huh? So I was like, what, there's a monument? For, nah. So, look, when I was a kid, I loved stories just like any kid. And she was a great storyteller. And, and so, I, you know, I remember um, her telling me this giant, we're related to this giant. He was on a stamp. And, you know, here's the U.S. government honoring him in 1976. And, you know, I remember like, well, how tall was he, Grandma? Oh, he was like 10 feet tall. Like, she didn't know, you know. <laughs> but he was Portuguese. That's what I remember her saying. But, like, how he's from Portugal or why or, you know, any of that is like, what? she didn't know is the point. So we lived in 2006 in North Carolina, and she, my grandmother's telling me that story. And, you know, they should go visit that monument. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get around to that monument one of these days. And, well, I dig it up. It's in Greensboro. I'm, I'm like, well, that's funny. I have some business in the environmental world. I've got some business meetings up there every now and then. So um, it so happens that I had a meeting, a, an environmental meeting, literally next door to where this monument was for my ancestor. I was like, that's so weird. Like, that's so after the meeting, I'm like, I gotta go find this monument grandma was telling me about, right? You know? So I pull up to the monument for my ancestor, Peter Francisco. And, and this is huge, huge, like, it looks like the Washington Monument type of book. You know, Washington Monument, DC, you know, big, huge. It wasn't that tall, of course. It's just, it looks like that, right? Big, huge stones, 11 stones high in honor of the 11 British that he killed on the battlefield there. I was like, what? So I read on the plaque there. The plaque says, Peter Francisco rendered himself likely the most famous private soldier in this engagement with his very own broadsword. And I was like, what? He kills 11 British on this battlefield with a massive broadsword? Like, what? I'm related to this guy. Like, what is the story here? So I go and say, there's, you know, uh, if you've been there, Greensboro. Uh, Greensboro, of course, is named after General Green from the American Revolution. So... Greensboro, you go Battleground Avenue up to, there's a whole big national military park with all these monuments, and there's there's the Peter Francisco monument. But they also have a bookstore. So I go inside the bookstore, and I'm looking around for the books about Peter Francisco. I'm like, I gotta find out what, I'm related to this giant, like, who's swinging his big ass, badass broadsword. Like, this is crazy, you know? So I'm going and I'm looking around, and I finally I, I go to the, the bookstore man, I'm like, to the manager, I'm like, well, where are the books about Peter Francisco? You I mean, you got a monument out there. They have a display case with all the stuff that he owned and, yeah. and crap. I'm like, you got to have a book. She's like, no, sorry. And so she asked the park manager, oversees the whole thing. He comes out and I'm like, hey, I'm a descendant. And he's like, oh, so good to meet a descendant. I'm like, I'm tall and big guy. And I was like, where are the books about Peter Francisco? And he goes, somebody needs to write a book. And he points his finger in my face and he goes, you should write a book. You're a descendant. And I was like, I think I will. You know, there's that crazy entrepreneur. I'm like, what? Well, As if you don't have enough going on. Right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, you know, I'm one of those just passionate people that live life uh, to the fullest, you know. And I'm like, write a book. Why not? Nobody else has written. Well, come to find out there were a bunch of books have been written about Peter Francisco. I say a bunch, like like a half a dozen over, you know, over the years. Uh, matter of fact, come to find out that one of the authors, a book that was released in the 70s, the author lived right next door to my grandfather, and he loved to interview him over 10 years and gathered all his data and released the book in the 70s. You can still find that. Um, it's called The Virginia Giant, which is one of the names that Peter Francisco was called. He was either called the Hercules of the Revolution in his day or the Virginia Giant, one of the two. So, yeah, here I am, you know, talking to the bookstore manager, and he's like, you should write a book. I was like... 
I will. Shoot. So that was in 2006, shortly after we had moved to North Carolina. And uh, man, the journey has been crazy. Tell me about it. Ever since. Hold on, I got a puff of my cigar, otherwise it's going to go out. Ah, Liga Pravada. You got to love it. So uh, I began writing my book, and um, I ended up hiring a ghostwriter. I got, I don't know, I got maybe five chapters into it. And I was like, man, this is going to be a long process. So I hired a, a writer. He helped me flesh it out. And, and um, I connected with a lot of the other descendants. There had been descendants that had been you know, promoting him and preserving his record for decades long before me. And uh, I found out they were doing a, a, a wreath laying in 2008. And I was like, oh, maybe I can get my book out at that time. And I was being... Uh, you know, probably a little hasty there, it was just, you know, but I was pushing for it. And uh, I thought, well, if I can't release my book in 2008, maybe I can bring him to life. Because the one thing as I was unraveling his story was I found out he was this giant from the American Revolution. Again, grandma was like, he's 10 feet tall. I found out he was six foot six. I'm like, I stand six foot six. That's crazy. And the more I unraveled, I found out, wait, I'm a seventh generation descendant. You know, biblically, we can kind of look at a number seven and you go, hmm. So I'm like, oh, that's so funny. Well, then I come to find out there's multiple states that observe Peter Francisco Day. Today, there's about seven or eight different states that observe Peter Francisco Day. Well, Virginia is where Peter Francisco lived most of his life. And uh, I say most because I'll get back to that. But most of his life was in Virginia. Well, Virginia, the state of Virginia, passed a resolution to honor Peter Francisco Day the same day I came into the world. So the Virginia Senate is literally voting and hitting a, you know, a gap, you know, and saying, let's honor Peter Francisco every year in the state of Virginia, the same day I was born. And, you know, I always say, if you can't hear the voice of God nice and loud in your life, as I put those dots together, I was like, okay, the Lord has a purpose and a plan for me with this story. What was it like interviewing these other descendants that your distant cousin, maybe distant, distant cousins, and hearing? And did you get any out of print books besides the night one in 1970? And yeah, multiple ones are on my bookshelf. Um, they're probably the oldest ones, are early 1900s, written by his great granddaughter, <clears throat> Nanny Francisco Porter. And it was actually released around the same time as the monument in North Carolina was built. And so that was built in the early 1900s. And so today there's actually five monuments in the U.S. that stand in his honor and one over in the Azores, uh, where he's originally from. So most people have no idea where the Azores are. So if I say the word Azores, they're like, where is that? You know, is that like in Chile, you know, South America somewhere? The Azores Islands are like the Hawaiian Islands of the Atlantic Ocean. So they're kind of smack in the middle of the of the Atlantic and about 950 miles off the coast of Lisbon so if you've been to Lisbon just go fly about two and a half hours and, and you, you land the Azores but there's nine islands and he's from the island of Terceira and Terceira in his day was called the island of Jesus Christ no joke so here you have this little kid born in 1760 on the island of Jesus Christ at age five, he's kidnapped on the day of Pentecost. Now, the day of Pentecost in the Portuguese community, still to this day, is like, you got Christmas, you got Easter, day of Pentecost is right up there. I mean, it's a big, big festive time. So he's born on the island of Jesus Christ. He's kidnapped on the day of Pentecost, and he's dropped off in Virginia, not in Brazil or South Africa or something. You know, he's not dropped off in those. He's dropped off in Virginia in that moment in time. Well, initially, he's kind of taken in by, um, or 
He, there's actually uh, documentation to say he was bought. He was he end up in a, a orphanage, and he was kind of purchased by Patrick Henry's uncle. So Judge Anthony Winston purchases him, takes him back. He ends up basically a slave on a on a Virginia plantation. But as he's growing up, he's growing into this giant of a man. Well, of course, Patrick Henry's uncle was having Patrick Henry at his house and just the debate of freedom and, you know, taxation without representation and all that was going on there. If you think of the Boston Massacre in, in the 1770 and all that was taking place there, all those debates were around the plantation where Peter Francisco is from. Actually, the plantation is called Locust Grove. So you can look it up on Wikipedia. You'd find a whole page about Peter Francisco, the plantation, uh, Locust Grove. But anyway, so here he is growing up around that that debate. And then in 1775, he, uh, again, as a slave, quasi-indentured servant, if you will, uh, was there at that famous moment in time where Patrick Henry says, give me liberty or give me death. And that was the second Virginia convention that took place where they were debating. And Patrick Henry was just making the, the point there that British soldiers are coming. They've already locked up our guns and our ammunition. And unless we are willing to stand and fight, we're all going to be dead or, you know, because we've been debating this. And so I don't know about you, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And so here's Peter outside the church listening in and, um, you know, paying attention everywhere. And so then he's ready to fight, you know. Here he is, 16-year-old kid, but a six-foot-six, 260-pound giant. Now, in his day, the average man stood five foot six. So if anybody's been to Williamsburg, you'd see their beds are small, their houses are small. Like, hey, they were just smaller people back then. But here he is, a foot taller than the average man. I always say he was like Shaquille O'Neal on the battlefields of the American Revolution. I mean, imagine a guy charging you like Shaquille O'Neal. You're like, oh, hell no, you know. <laughs> what does it take to get off this battlefield as soon as possible, you know? So that was Peter Francisco. What does he do after the revolution? Well, so... He killed 11 guys in so one he, battle. So he joins then, the Continental Army. He becomes legendary because of his size and his strength. In every engagement, every battle, there was something that took place. Um, George Washington later says, without Peter Francisco, we were likely lost two crucial battles and with it our freedom. He was the one-man army. And so that quote is on a monument up in, in Massachusetts. And you really unravel that quote and you think, Wait, hold on. George Washington is saying without him, we could have lost our freedom. I mean, in a nutshell, that's what he's saying. But he's kind of referring to two crucial battles. And typically people ask me, so what crucial battles do you think he was talking about? And I would say probably the Battle of Stony Point, upstate New York, and probably the Battle of Greensboro um, that uh, down in, in my neck of the woods. So the American Revolution, you see the Northern Campaign, the Southern Campaign, and he was very famous in both of those engagements, really fought from the beginning, 1776, right to the end, 1781. And um, there was always some crazy story. The, probably the most famous story that he's known for was picking up a cannon off the battlefield. And that's what the U.S. Postal Service put on a stamp, is him grabbing this cannon and putting it up on his shoulder to get it away from the British um, so they didn't uh, take it and use it against them. So back to 2008. The Peter Francisco Society was doing a, a wreath laying. I didn't have my book out yet. And I was like, well, maybe I can impersonate him. Maybe I can actually bring him to life. That'd be kind of fun. I, I did acting in school and you know church and stuff. And so I was like, yeah, I, I'll do that. So um, so I actually, I didn't have a lot of money in 2008. And so um, so I asked, I, sent, I wrote a letter to all my, uh, was before email, maybe I did an email too, but in 2008 and sent a letter to all my family that were descendants of Peter Francisco. I said, look, if, 
If everybody chips in 35 bucks, I can get a massive six foot sword made for, for my reenactment of Peter Francisco. Sure enough, they did. They said, you know, so all my family, you know, chipped in and I had this big, massive, badass sword made and I bring Peter Francisco to life in 2008 for the first time. But then of course I released my book and then that became my thing. I was hired in as a keynote speaker and I would dress up as Peter and I'd swing the sword. And, um, I mean, I spoke at universities and schools and historic groups and uh, all across from Portugal to Hawaii and everywhere in between. So I, I brought Peter Francisco to life about over a hundred times and crowds of hundreds or thousands. I think the biggest crowd was 10,000 in the Carolinas one time. And um, it was just always a, a load of fun. But so, I mean, I, from 2008 until 2018, and um, I like to say I hung up my tricorn hat to uh, work on the film based on my novel. And I knew I just couldn't keep running around doing book signings and, and dressing up as Peter Francisco if I really wanted to bring the movie to life. And so that's another part, but I got to take another drag before I tell the next part of the story. Before you do, what do you do after the revolution? Well, so Peter Francisco, we see in real life, was like a rock star in his day. But because he was a private soldier, and the reason he's a private soldier, and, and most history books, most, I say, because not all, most books don't talk about him, is because he was a private soldier. You think of our history books that talk about the generals and the colonels, and those are the people that we remember from the battlefields, not the average schmo, right? Well, he was a private soldier because he had been a slave. He couldn't read or write. And so the story is that George Washington offered him a commission to promote him to be a colonel, but he couldn't read orders. He couldn't sign his name, you know, he, um, that, uh, he didn't have an education. So after the revolution, what we see is him going and getting his education, but in particular, in particular, so he went to school for three years, but it was most important because he had fallen in love with a girl from a prominent Virginia family. It was kind of a Romeo Juliet story where he'd fallen in love with a girl. She's already betrothed to a wealthy dude. And her dad's like, who are you? Like, okay, you're famous, but you know, you can't provide for my daughter. You don't have an education. And then that day, of course, that was everything. Like, education, who, land. Land, who are your parents? Where, you know, where are you from? He himself actually did not know where he was from in his day. And I'll get to that story. How do we know he's from the Azores? So, but he himself in his day didn't know where he's from. So who's your mommy and daddy? He didn't have any answer for that. So what we see in real life is that he goes to school for three years to earn the hand of Susanna Anderson. And they married in 1784 and they have a couple of children, but that was of course after he gets his education. He was given land you know, for fighting in the American Revolution. He, served, he uh, saved uh, his colonel's life, and that colonel we see in, in history gave him more land. So we see after the war, famous, invited to Mount Vernon, you know, George Washington's home, or Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home. We see him there, those types of parties, but him always trying to achieve what he had lost when he was kidnapped as a little kid. When he was kidnapped as a little kid, he actually was a part of a wealthy family. And the reason we know that is because when he was found on the dock in Virginia, he had very wealthy uh, clothes. Uh, the history books show that he was he had silver shoe buckles, a P and a F, that he carried around with him for uh, later into life. And so he was from a wealthy family in the Azores, in, in the Portuguese community, kidnapped. And you see the rest of his life after the war trying to regain what he had lost. And so he had taverns and he had businesses and 
his first wife passed away and he remarries and second wife passed away. His third wife, he marries the daughter of a governor from Delaware. And so you could see him trying to uh, achieve uh, throughout his life what he lost. And in the end of his life, he was actually serving in the Virginia Senate. And when he passed away, the Virginia government shut down, paid for his funeral. And the Richmond uh, Dispatch was the newspaper at the time. The Dispatch said it was the largest funeral procession they'd ever seen in the state of Virginia. And so he, you could say that maybe he achieved by God's providence and the hand of God, he achieved what he had lost. What, you know, almost like a Joseph story, you know, kidnapped, you know, not sold into slavery like Joseph, but everything that man meant for evil, God returned in his lifetime for good. It's a profound, powerful story of God's providence in his life that I think needs to be told. With that broad and big of a story, you said you're pursuing a movie. Why not a series? Because there's so much there. Right. There is so much there. Oh, much there. Yeah. That it feels like it would be a good Netflix series or, right. or, or a streaming service series mm-hmm. versus just a one-off movie where you're glossing over so many intricate details about someone. Yeah, it's funny you say that because the journey to make the movie uh, started early on. I mean, I was getting filmed and I was, I was being interviewed on radio shows and television shows and whatnot uh, early on. And, and um, you know, I, produced, I had one producer from L.A., fly out, meet with me. He's like, oh, we're going to make this huge. It's going to be the biggest movie ever. And you're going to be in it. And blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, just telling me everything I wanted to hear. And I ended up signing with a film company that was somewhat well-known and had some name recognition um, in 2012. And they did. No- they told me everything I wanted to hear and did nothing. All they did was just take my film rights. So I get my film rights back in 2013. I was like, dang it, I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, if anybody's going to make this, I'm going to make this movie, you know. So then I was on the path to, to turn it into a full feature. And along that journey there, uh, I, I've spoken at men's ministries and, and organized a men's ministry uh, weekend getaway called Battle Ready in the Carolinas. And one of the speakers, actually the founding pastor of Battle Ready, um, David Tarkington said, you know, if you ever need a big strapping guy, like who's gonna play Peter Francisco? That's what everybody would say. Well, who's gonna play Peter Francisco? Like, where are you gonna find that guy? Like, this jack guy that's picking up a cannon. And David Tarkington, uh, Pastor Tarkington out of uh, Jacksonville, Florida, he goes, hey, if you need a big strapping guy, there's this kid in my youth group way, you know, years ago that grew up, went on to Hollywood, and now he's this big dude, just jacked. And I always, of course, thought of like somebody like The Rock or Jason Momoa. I was like, I, but I would like a believer. I really like a Christian to play that part, to bring him to life. So that was always like, you know, a big part of the journey. And, so anyway, Pastor Tarkington was like, yeah, just look him up. And so I looked up Brian Patrick Wade. And I was like, wait, you know this guy? Like, who is this guy? I'm looking at his picture. I'm like, that guy is jacked. <laughs> that guy is huge. And uh, he goes, yeah, I'll just make a phone call. And so he connects us up. That was eight years ago. And Brian and I uh, have been to Portugal a number of times, the Azores a bunch of times. And so along the journey of just taking along the, the ride and, I think it was one of our trips to Portugal. He he turns to me and uh, right around the before COVID, he goes, you know, we really should be talking about a series. Back to your question, like you know, I know you got it in your head like Braveheart, and that's all well and nice, but everything is shifting to a series. This was 2019. Everything's shifting to a series, and 
So we actually started talking with John Irwin uh, and Brian's connections there. And so um, John Irwin's an awesome dude. If John's listening, if John's listening, bro, I love you. Great guys. And uh, but anyway, we John loved it. And uh, but we continue to kind of just see the other options that were out there on the table. And and uh, so Brian, and I fast forward uh, through COVID hits. And so obviously that did a number on the film world there for a minute, but we found ourselves talking by 2021 with angel studios. And I will say, as I'm smoking my cigar, that that was all thanks to Kay, Kay, who started Holy Smokes. I call Kay. I'm like, Hey bro, trying to get a hold of people at Angel Studios. How, do you know anybody? <laughs> and of course, Kay being Kay knows everybody. He's like, yeah, yeah, call this guy. So, um, you know, one thing led to another, and Brian and I are out there in uh, Utah and uh, sitting down talking with Angel Studios. So we signed a distribution deal in 2021. A nine-episode miniseries uh, is the plan. And um, raise some capital. I think having a distributor partner is a big part of the capital campaign there. It's been an interesting journey there because in 2022 we filmed. Uh, had a film team that just missed the vision completely. So we ended up spending a ridiculous amount of money, threw it all away, and had to refilm here at the beginning of, of 2023. And I say film, the Angel Studios uh, platform, if, for those of you who don't know, The Chosen's been highly successful. They've had over 500 million downloads of that show. But they start with a short proof of concept, or what they call is a torch. So they're like, hey, shoot a torch first. And, but it's American Revolution, so you want to do it and do it well and do it right. And that's my passion with it, too. So we raised a significant amount of capital, uh, shot, you know, again, threw that away and refilmed here. And, um, and, but we love what we just filmed, man. And we just finally got it finished, color corrected and all that. And I've shown it to some of the holy smokers out there. You sent me a link. I didn't get a chance to watch it yet. But yes, that's right. So, yeah, so. no, no worries, no worries. Yeah. But um, so I've talked to Kay and we're trying to get out and, and show it to as many Holy Smokers as we possibly can. That's awesome. But I will say that Angel Studios is just excited out of their mind. They would like to not only bring Peter Francisco's story to their platform, but also just spin off series. Uh, Peter Francisco in real life becomes good friends with General Lafayette. And there is a street named after General Lafayette in every city in America. But very few people know about Lafayette and, and the importance that he had. So there could be a whole other Lafayette series. And, you know, so characters, of course, that come out of uh, Lusso. We haven't said that yet, but our series is called Lusso. It's the name of my book. And Lusso is derived from the word Lusitania. And what's wild is if you go back in history, you see the Lusitanians, first century people group, were the fiercest warriors that the Roman Empire went against. Fiercest. It took them years to conquer the Lusitanians. Just fierce, badass warriors. And so what we just point in our, in our short, uh, right at the beginning, we just point out that, you know, fast forward, God had a plan for one Luso warrior, Peter Francisco. <laughs> That's awesome. How do people find out about this? Stay in the know. Well, uh, be looking on Angel Platform. Uh, we'll be releasing our torch uh, later, uh, either late this year or early 2024. We're trying to, of course, fit in with all their other shows that they're releasing and movies. But obviously you can go buy my book on Amazon, Lusso for love, liberty, and legacy. So, again, my name's Travis Bowman. You can find it that way. But, um, yeah, that's how you can find my book. But, or you can go to LussoTheSeries.com. You can see a little bit more information there, too. Travis Bowman, let's get to rapid-fire questions. See how many we can get before, the, right, storm before the rain in. comes in. 
Hey everyone, I wanted to announce that we have Holy Smokes gear. That's right, we have swag. We currently have hats, shirts, stickers, like for your vehicle or your travel humidor, magnets, even branded bourbon glasses for a limited time. Go to holysmokes.club and click on the shop tab. That's holysmokes.club. I'm super proud of the shirts. They're made with Bella Canvas shirts that are soft and incredibly comfortable. The hats fit wonderfully, which can be a problem for those of us with big noggins. We plan on having a lot more to offer, like Guayabara shirts, additional t-shirt designs, beanies, polos, hoodies, cigar accessories, and much more. Check it out. And even if you don't make a purchase now, be sure to sign up for that email list, as I've thrown a couple big discount coupon codes for those exclusively on that list. So click the shop tab at holysmokes.club. Thanks. Rapid fire. Here. When'd you first try cigars? Great question. Great question. I got a funny story around that too. All right, let's hear it. I first had a cigar when I was 18 or 19. I was at a church men's getaway camping thing. And so the guy's sitting around the campfire like, hey, you had a cigar? I'm like, no. But dude, I fell in love with cigars. Fast forward to get married at age 23, 24. And a friend of mine buys me a Cuban as a wedding present. He gives it to me. It's wrapped, you know, it's like wrapped up in this cylinder, you know, sitting on my dresser. And, um, yeah, we get married, go on a honeymoon, we come back, and, and um, you know, guy friends are like, hey, let's get together, have a cigar. I'm like, yeah. Well, it had been a couple weeks, and so it had been sitting on my dresser. And I, I'm looking around. I'm like, where did my cigar go? I'm like, hey, honey, where did my cigar go? You know, the one that Dave Yaku gave me? And she's like, oh, that thing? Oh, I threw that thing out. I was like, whoa, 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 time out. Like, hold on. There's one thing you need to know in this marriage. You don't ever touch a man's cigar. <laughs> I'm like, what did you just do? You threw away a Cuban. A Cuban. She's like, what? Was it a nice cigar? I'm like, anyway, so we laid down the law there. I'm like, don't ever, don't ever throw out my cigar. I didn't have a humidor at the time, you know, so I was just sitting there. I'm, anyway, so that was the... Uh, Back when I was 19, so a good 30 years ago, easy. 32 years ago, maybe. You ever do pipe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my oldest son, he's 24, he's gotten it. He smokes cigars, but then he's shifted to a pipe now. So I bought a pipe with him, and so I still like cigars, though. I yeah. That's Favorite cigar? I would say the Ligas, but Padron, in our area in Charlotte, where I live, uh, uh, George Padron came to town and he, get, he made a special cigar for everybody. That, I mean, I always, always loved Padrones, but that kind of made it even more special. Daniel Richie was there with us that night, and there's a bunch of us that were there with George Padron. That was fun. Best dollar for dollar cigar. Oh, man. I would say probably the Undercrown. So it's a Drew Estate, but it's such a good cigar, and it's not as expensive as the Liga is, but man, it's such a good cigar. What's your cigar that you're either going to purchase or saving up for the movie premiere? Mm. For the big celebration. Bro, that's a tough one. I have to say the Beheke, you know. Cohiba Beheke is, yeah. yeah. And Roland Martinez, who's with Holy Smokes, he goes to Cuba a lot, but he brought me back one a couple years ago from Cuba, and I was like, dude, that cigar. I don't know, but that, that was me. I mean, it's a, like a hundred and some dollar cigar. I, yeah. Where's your go-to place to get smokes? 
Man, my go-to uh, in the Charlotte area, we've got a Casa de Monte Cristo. So I go there a lot with our Holy Smoke groups. But then we also have a smaller cigar bar, uh, cigar lounge called Burners. So both those are um, spots that I go to. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Oh, snap. I, you know, it kind of goes along with the interesting place. So when I was in China... Um, Which was going to be my next question. Yeah, yeah, right, huh? I, so I, I, two for one. I, two for one, that's right. I mean, I love, you know, just smoking a cigar wherever I am in the world, which is just, you know, it's kind of part, just be like, hey, I'm smoking a cigar here in whatever country. Actually, I got a fun story with Holy Smokes. So I joined Holy Smokes in, I don't know, 2017. Um, I meet Kay. It was about 600, 700 members at the time. And I was like, well, I'm traveling to Rome. Rome. I tell that story yes, all Rome. the time, dude. I tell that story all the time. I'm like, I'm, throwing, I'm traveling to Rome. Like, what are the chances there's somebody in Rome? So I threw it out on Holy Smoke. Like, any chance anybody's in Rome? And there is Pete from Denver traveling. Pete Nemeth. Pete yeah. Nemeth. And I didn't know Pete Nemeth. I just knew. He was like, yeah, I'm here. So, bro, we, we get cigars and walk the Coliseum in Rome together, and that is just the most epic, epic story of meeting somebody. I tell that story, and then I also tell uh, um, Carl was at a conference in Malta. Carl Muller was at a conference in Malta. Malta. Hey, small conference. Hey, any Holy Smokers happen to be here? Sure enough, they were, getting, they were having a cigar together. That so. was just so what? I'll tell another Holy Smoke story. I'm landing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I throw it out. I'm like, hey, uh, any uh, Holy Smokers? And Brian um, Pilmore, he's, he's a Holy Smoker. He's like, um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm around. So he, got, he gets a couple of guys together. Well, it turns out what we did not realize, I meet Brian for the first time through Holy Smokes, did not realize that his spiritual grandparents were also my spiritual grandparents. What? All through Holy Smokes, bro. All through Holy Smokes. So it was an older couple from Virginia Tech that mentored his parents as young believers. Same, did the same for my parents, mentored my parents as young believers. And then we were, so we were having a cigar and I was like, wait, how do you know them? Dr. Cliff Randall and Phyllis Randall. I'm like, bro, you know, like, how do you know them? And we realized, I was like, bro, so your parents are believers because of them. My parents are believers. And so you and I are products spiritually by the same spiritual grandparents. Isn't that wild? All through Holy Smoke. Marvel or DC? Mm. Were you into comic books as a kid? A little bit. I will say Marvel because Brian Patrick Wade, who I'm working with, was absorbing man in Marvel. So we uh, we love sh- talking stories about Marvel all the time. Favorite superhero mm. when you were a kid? Mm. Probably when I was a kid. Favorite one would have been Superman, just because flying. I've always loved flying, and thank God I do because I travel so much. But um, it, it was probably just simply Superman. I mean, it might sound cliche, but as a kid, that was probably it. Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, man. I, I would say Star Wars. Our first investor in Luso, and we've had many through the years, but our first investor is a, is a diehard Trekkie fan. And he's like, keeps asking me, when is Shatner getting involved? I'm like, Shatner, bro, he's like 90 years old. He's like, no, I'm just asking. Like, I just want to see Shatner in the <laughs> Into sports? Mm-hmm. Obviously, with, with my height, I played a lot of sports. But I enjoyed soccer more than really more than basketball. Okay. What were your teams? When I was young, man, I became an avid Michael Jordan fan. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I mean, I grew up watching the, you know, Lakers Celtics in those days. But when, you know, Jordan, 
I just, you know, I had Jordan posters all over my walls as a kid. And, and then, of course, I ended up moving to North Carolina, and, of course, he owns the team there, the Hornets in Charlotte. And I haven't had, that would be, who would you like to smoke cigars with? One day I would love to have a cigar with Michael Jordan. What kinds of music do you love? Mm. You know, man, what's funny is a little bit of everything. I will listen to uh, certainly, you know, Christian contemporary or, you know, just Christian pop, but, but I'll also listen to some hip-hop, I'll, you know, Lecrae. I'll listen to some country. I'll go all over the map, truthfully. I'm riding down the road. I'll, I'll kind of mix it up. What's a band from your youth that will completely transport you back? Oh, man. <laughs> like, like a... You know, when rap first came out, Run DMC, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But even in the Christian world, I mean, DC Talk, you know, you know, some of their music uh, just will take me back to a moment in time there. Favorite food? Snap. That's a good question. As I have traveled the globe, I have fallen in love with sushi. Love some good sushi. And that's actually new for even our family. So my wife wasn't really a sushi eater, but... In the last five years now, we all just love my boys. We are like that's our go-to now. Dogs, cats, neither or both. Mm. Another good question. I love dogs. I've never owned a dog. Never had a dog. We have a cat, and my wife would probably love to have a dog. I just travel so much, so she's like, that would all be on me. But I thoroughly, thoroughly love dogs. But you know, if you look at our house, we have a cat, and you think we're just cat lovers. But do you have a nickname growing up? So funny thing about that, I've had many nicknames, um, T-Bone, you know, for Travis and being tall and a big guy. But uh, in college, I did take some, some college. So entrepreneur, didn't, go, didn't actually go to college, uh, just was right into the throes of business. But I did do some community college uh, courses. And one was an outdoor uh, mountaineering class, which I loved. And mountain climbing, they called me stretch because, you know, the little guy's climbing up. And I'm like, oh, that's nothing. That would, so I got I've, I've noticed that. I've got a uh, membership at my climbing gym and someone who's like, you know, a woman who's 5'2", or a guy who's like 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, and I'm like, man, they're really struggling with that. Wow, I'm so glad I'm 6'2". <laughs> right? I know. Yeah, when you're married, when, 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 when they come down, I'll be like, man, I just feel for you because it's just like... Yep, right nothing. Yeah, it's nothing for me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, that was the nickname in my 20s with Stretch. That's awesome. All right, final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you, and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I love that question. I would say that Holy Smokes is, is truly just a community of guys. And I know we've got some ladies in Holy Smokes too, but I mean, I've traveled all over the country, had, had cigars with Holy Smoke groups all over. It's just awesome. And I've thrown out, like, hey, I'm in Chicago and had cigars with guys that I didn't know. But it's truly like a brotherhood of guys just hanging out. And in Charlotte, I'll pull the guys together and we've all gotten to know each other just so well. We all go to different churches. That's what's wild. Like the, the majority of us are, are literally at a different church, but yet there's something that bonds us beyond Jesus to, to the cigar. And so that's really cool. It, it kind of like supersedes our denominational boundaries, if you will. And uh, that's really 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 wild i agree completely all right if you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history living or deceased who would they be can't name jesus can't name jesus yeah i mean i would say probably in you know not jesus i would say you know one of the disciples i'd say probably peter 
because Peter just strikes me as maybe a little, I have maybe a little bit of that, let's go, let's do it, you know? <laughs> so I, was, I would love to sit down with Peter and just be like, help me understand, you know, your journey and um, understanding him. But I would say, uh, secondly, in the Charlotte area, well, back up, growing up in the Baltimore area, the Colts moved out of town and the Redskins were the team to root for. And Joe Gibbs, of course, wins the Super Bowl and he became legendary. But what I love about Gibbs is that he was a business guy, but then he was also using his fame to build a boys' home. Now, this is back in the 80s. And that, you know, these stories about that in the newspapers and, and all. And then fast forward, I, I moved to Charlotte and gotten to know the Gibbs family and, and just our church. And he is just awesome how he's a business ministry-minded man, like ministry in the marketplace. And like he doesn't separate those two. They just go hand in hand for him. Now, I don't know if I've met you know, Coach Gibbs you know, several times. I don't know if Coach smokes cigars, but I know people on the staff that do. But <laughs> and over there at Gibbs Racing. So, you know, here he's been legendary in the football world. And then he comes and builds a race team, and that's become legendary. And, and so, you know, incredibly successful, but also using his passion for Christ uh, in the marketplace. So, I, man, to sit down and have a just, I mean, he's a go, go, go person in his 80s. And to sit down and have a cigar, that's what I love about cigars is sitting down and slows you down. Yeah, it slows you down and you hear stories just like you're, you're like we're sitting here talking, you know. And you like hear, we did last night over at Eric's place. Yeah, over at Eric's place. And just you hear everybody's story. It's just wow. All right, who's the last one? Last one, I'd say MJ. Yeah, Michael Jordan, man, because I live in Charlotte and he's a cigar smoker, man. So you need to listen to Tom Cacadelis's episode. Okay. Because Tom owns or owns owned i think past geez a year and you, you just kind of forget this stuff maybe it's been two years since i interviewed him cigar lounges in north carolina and michael jordan would come michael in. jordan showed up michael jordan would send some you know one of his guys in to go grab some sticks and then he'd go to another lounge and it just so happened he walked in and had a cigar with Tom. Oh, that's so cool. And Tom got like two hours with him, if I remember right. Dude, just, just Tom, Michael I'm so Jordan. jelly. Oh, yeah. I'm so that's jelly. Crazy. That's crazy. That's awesome. Final question. We're meeting one year from today, and I got a bottle of your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke. Yeah, man. What are we celebrating? What are we celebrating? Probably uh, full funded? Yeah, fully funded. So, obviously, the Angel platform, it's, you know, build a crowd on crowdfunding. And, um, you know, so fully funded by this time next year to be shooting our first three episodes. Yeah, that would be awesome to be celebrating that this time next year. And then we would go and shoot the next three episodes, four, five, and six. And then re here's the thing. The kicker is release the final three episodes in 2026, which is our nation's 250th anniversary. Ooh, so the timing of that would be epic. That, that would be a good plan. You know, 2024, 2025, and 2026. Maybe even do a big theatrical release. May it be um, so. Nationwide. So. May it be so. Thanks, Travis. Yeah, brother. Thank you. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for all you're doing for Holy Smokes. Mm -hmm.